0: this is another episode of artworks and therapy today's date is august 17th 2023 i'm here with a guest that is a colleague and dumbo resident or
1: yes was and now have moved to kensington just south of the park
0: <laughs> emery michael welcome to the podcast
1: Thank you so much, John. I'm really excited to be here, and thank you for asking. I mean, it's great to be able to have conversations like this so people know what a bunch of us do and how these things work.
0: I'm so happy to have a guest like you that's uh, contemporary, that's in the work as we speak, because a lot of the podcasts we've had thus far, um, beginning with Art Robbins, the late Arthur Robbins, Mm -hmm. just started out as kind of histories influenced a lot of how you and I maybe work, I'm, I'd be love to talk about that. And um, you um, own water and stone is one I know about, but in your signature line when we were emailing was Firefly and Phoenix.
1: Yes, it's been an interesting journey. And I think that things, I love how things evolve. And I love now at this point in my career, being able to support others in that, both clients and their just life and the path and the adventures they're on and the things they're going through. And then also therapists. So yeah, it's been interesting. I am, Water and Stone is my main company. It started in 2015. It grew into this amazing group practice where I really was able to pull together a wonderful group of colleagues and therapists who have that more contemplative approach, who have a different view on how to do things that we see in, I mean, many different places, but Like, I feel like, especially in New York City, there's a very different focus, often psychoanalytic or cognitive behavioral. And those have such an amazing place in the therapy world. But I think then having the diversity of adding in a more contemplative approach as an option for people who really are preferring that way of working has just been amazing to build and to have people join me who are super excited about it. And I have both, um, art therapists and drama therapists and dance movement therapists. So I've worked with All sorts of different people. And it's allowed us to reach so many different clients. And really, that came out of my own work in private practice, um, working in hospice, working with different people at end of life, death and dying, grief and loss, which are really my my passionate (laughs) areas that I love. And it grew into this practice that friends were saying, how do you do that? And that's when I started thinking, oh, I can help others do the same thing, even if they don't want to join me. And then during the pandemic in 2020, I had so many people asking me, how do you do this? Because I want to help people and we're in such an unprecedented state right now. Just please help. (laughs) And so that's where Firefly and Phoenix came from. I started the official um, company as a way to Let Water and Stone be the therapy side of the work that I can really support clients and people working with clients and all the wonderful communities we work with. And then Firefly and Phoenix became the other side, which is my supporting therapists and building their dream practice to help the people they love working with. So it's they really go hand in hand, but it allows me to exercise supporting business knowledge that a lot of therapists don't have and we don't always get in school and then building what they dream of and on the other side, being able to not only support the clients I see personally, but also the therapists who work with me at Water and Stone, the clients that they see.
0: You have almost two brains, right? <laughs> <laughs> Working at the same time, I'm looking at you and imagining your two brains is how does that work? And are, do you find that you're unusual or, or is it just, you know, a unique uh, therapist, if you will, that can kind of also have a business savvy?
1: Well, I think I'm really lucky in that way to be able to have both sort of part, both brains developed <laughs> to a point where they both can work on a really great level at this point. Um, So before becoming a therapist, my background was actually in theater as a theater director. Mm-hmm. And I had trained, I mean, I, that's what I went to undergrad for. I had training in stage management. Um, and I think that I've always been naturally excited to organize and be that director role with people in great situations to sort of guide groups of people to like a dream understanding. So that's always been a part of me and something I know I'm good at. But this has allowed it to sort of be (laughs) directed in a really helpful, amazing way. So after sort of that theater world experience, which honestly helps me every day that I run my companies, because with the marketing and with these things where we get a lot of silence or a lot of no's or people going, I don't understand what you do. It doesn't, the theater training really allowed me to understand that that's not about me personally. And so I can work with that and I can have resilience in that. And so I teach other therapists how to be resilient in the face of that when often what we feel is, oh no, no one's responding. I'm not good enough, or I don't know how to do this, or there are better people out there. To switch that around and go, no, if they're not responding or if someone's saying no, great, you have information or you know you need to try something else or here's what you need to do next. So I think that I've always had the resilience and business side and excitement to play with that. Mm -hmm. And then through really starting after getting my degree in transpersonal counseling, psychology and art therapy from Naropa, I really was able to sort of, I had a wonderful supervisor. I've also found people along the way who've really supported these different brains I have, <laughs> who basically said when I'm like, the job I have right now is horrible. I really, it's not fitting for me and it's not right. Said, well, what do you actually want to do? And I mm-hmm. said, well, I'd love to travel to retirement homes and go places where people can't usually have access to creative arts therapy budgetarily. And just because they're in these places, they can't come to me. What if I traveled around and went to Places and ran groups so that they just had to pay me for an hour or two a week, but I could have a bunch of different places. And she went, great, no idea how this is going to happen, but let's do it. And this was Carol wow. Thayer Cox, who um, has worked with Barry Cohen and has was a huge part of many things in our therapy world. And she's like, great, I don't know how you're going to do it either, but I'm excited to see. And she really had that enthusiasm that let me jump into that kind of thing and explore that business side and be totally wrong about how much I was charging and what I was doing from the start. And then... To learn from it and to practice that resilience of, I can change it and I can try something else now. So that has been something that's always developed and that I'm very both proud of and excited to share with so many people, um, especially therapists who have these great ideas and can help so many people, but don't always know how to make that happen. Right. And then I have this other side where the reason I became an art therapist is because My grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and my father moved her into a wonderful facility that was just down the street from me where I was living at the time. And it was a small facility, not too many people. And I'd go visit and I took art supplies and the entire room would come to the table. And I'm like, oh, wow, something's happening. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but this is amazing. And the people who were making art with me their symptoms aren't the issue while they're here with me. They're really able to just enjoy being an artist and to create something and to be in a space without the judgment of, you can do this, you can't do that, how's your memory? None of that. We had fun and they were freer in some ways. (laughs) And so that really... Piqued my enjoyment of helping people with a new directed focus. Um, I think even as a director, stage manager, all of that, I loved. I love the background stuff and sort of helping everyone get to this common place where we want to put on a show that speaks to the audience in a certain way, or I want to help the actors really understand their characters so that they can relay these things to the audience. Shifting it to a therapeutic setting just sort of built on that and allowed me to be more passionate and engaged with people who really needed something. And when I really sort of explored working on locked Alzheimer's units and dementia units and being with people who were struggling in different ways, both physically and mentally in retirement homes, assisted living, that really sort of made me go, I love this because these are issues people have and things they have to deal with that don't necessarily even have a solution. But I can be here with them to help in just how their life is, the efficacy of their life, the day-to-day making it slightly better or giving an outlet. And as the therapist, I'm one of the few people that has no agenda. (laughs) I show up for them. Doctors, nurses, social workers, they have things they really need to do for very good reasons. Family members are going through things with this person, be it a parent, a sibling, that doesn't allow them. They can't just show up as a blank slate or to be there for that person because there's a lot going on there. It's family. So to be able to be there in that way just allowed me to really grow the side of me that loves being there for people and helping when other people don't always know how or aren't as comfortable with it. So it's been really nice to let both sort of grow in these different capacities.
0: Do you think, had you not had your grandmother the Alzheimer's, and your story struck me as you getting very comfortable in that milieu, and and do you think you would have pursued this career anyway? or, Or do you think that was a part of it? That you kind of found your way in your and and again almost your niche
1: definitely and i think i probably would have found it (laughs) i don't know how soon or what the focus would have been um because i really i think that is sort of what pushed me toward really enjoying the unknown part of it and especially if people have dementia or various other things having to meet them in their reality, sort of that other side of things that also (laughs) led me to finding Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, which is Buddhist-based and has a transpersonal approach, which is very different than most other schools and programs, fully accredited, wonderful training, and it also that experience with people who had dementia led to me sort of wanting that different approach to working with people in terms of psychology. And I was like, okay, this seems to be an approach that fits. So I feel like each piece sort of put me on the right track to how I'm now a therapist. I probably still would have found it otherwise, but I'm not sure if it would have been creative arts therapy or if it would have been the transpersonal approach or like what that would have looked like.
0: How do you assign clients when you uh, maybe do their consult?
1: Yeah. it's So even figuring that part out was a very interesting business step. And I had to really figure out how can I support people who want to see people when I know what they do, but I'm not doing sessions with them. So I have to learn from them how they approach clients and who do they want to work with. So really what I do is get to know my therapist. And I started with a couple friends because I'm like, I know you. So let's figure out how to have People as contractors working with clients, how do I pay you? How do I market for you? How do I want to do the client intake so the person who's coming for help feels supported from the start? Like, how do I want to do this? It was wonderful because I got to know my therapist better so that I could talk about them and share their strengths and their approach and what they loved. And it was neat to hear just between art therapists how different (laughs) it can be when they're even working with the same group of people. When one person's excited about teens and another person is, and they could even propose the same group, but it would be totally different. So to really start to understand what that feeling of how they work was, was very important to me. And then When clients call, and I still do this, their therapist is their key person, main resource, but I'm here too, and I'm happy to support in other ways. So I do all the first initial phone calls, talk through everything here, what's going on, and basically tell them about the therapist that I'm thinking would be a good fit. And also reassuring them that if they try someone and it doesn't feel right, or if it's like, "Mm, this doesn't feel like we're connecting the way I want to, that we can try someone else. So it's also that they don't have to then go do all those phone calls again and try to find a whole new person. I have a few people that they can sort of, feel out. And my therapists are always on board with that too, because they want to make sure the client has the right fit. And that if there's someone seeing them that, yeah, that feels good to them. So it's really been just dissecting sort of the process of learning how to share what others do. Emory, I'm looking at my
0: notes and and I just jotted down something. You're known as the guru of private practices. Yeah. When you mentioned the the Buddhist uh, approach, you know, it, it's just funny that I use the word guru. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> how funny that is. I know you have a book and it's, does it still hold up by the way, too, a printed book? I mean, with all the new things going on digitally and how fast things are changing. Good
1: question. And it's really funny because I was just talking to someone who'd recently bought my book and, and I asked them, are you finding it helpful? Like, really focuses on sort of the traveling art therapy time in my life and shows Mm -hmm. how to do some of the marketing and how do you set some of these things up? How do you talk to people? How do you like, so it puts a lot of stuff out there that I'm really glad I did, including um, some on like the ethics of this. Like, how do we think about the ethics of how we're doing this so that we're doing it in a way that really serves the community and feels good to everybody (laughs) involved and staying aware since we're really on our own at that point. I'm really glad I put it out there. And I think it still holds up in some wonderful ways. And it's been 10 years now since it came out, which shocked me when I realized that. And what I'm doing now, and you'll be really the first to know this one, I'm actually working on a second book now that's going to be a collection of a bunch of different creative arts therapists writing chapters about their journeys into various forms of private practice and entrepreneurship. And I think that many people, creative arts therapy-wise, know me as the person to go to with private practice questions, which still blows my mind a bit because I'm like, I I just do this. (laughs) Um, And it feels really good to know that I can tailor these things to so many different people or the half hours that I'll do one-on-one time with people. Every single one comes away going, oh my goodness, I have so much I can now do. We covered so much. And here's where I can go next. I love that because it feels like these ripple effects of, I'm not here to say, here's how you do it. And if you do it that way, you'll succeed. I want to be here to say, what do you want to do? And let's figure out, for you, with your strengths and the way you like to relate to people, how do you want to do this? Because if you're someone who loves talking on the phone but hates writing emails, let's put everything towards that. Or if you're someone who loves social media but doesn't want to like contact places individually, okay, let's see how we can really leverage that and make that something you can do. So, it feels like I've sort of come to this point where people recognize me because I'm able to help each one differently. A lot of people recognize just how I can bring their dreams to sort of the forefront of their mind and support them and then taking the next steps and seeing that ripple effect go out so that it then brings clients to them who really need their help and really highlights their strengths so that therapist isn't burning out and then lets it grow to something sustainable. Um, I love that part. I think for me, that's what really came out of the pandemic and the um, sort of chaos of that time was being able to really push that part of myself forward to help people get to their next step. ¶¶ Like, I love that you called me a guru. I love that that's like the feeling people get. And I also want there to be many others. (laughs) I would like it to be something where, when you know you want to like step into the world of private practice, you can look at a bunch of different people and go, ooh, this person has something similar to what I want to do. Maybe I'll talk to them. And then this person has something else. So I really want that to grow, which is where the idea for this book came from, because I want to show other people's stories and have them highlighted and hopefully have people connect with them who are inspired and want sort of to define different paths. I think it's wonderful how many different clients we can help most therapists have a really hard time honing in on how to do that in a way that feels good to them and how to do that in a way that sustains their life while it feels good to them. So this hopefully will be one of those inspirational books that allows people to really see just how many different ways you can do it and that there isn't a right way, a one way. And it's it can be amazing and it is doable. That's Probably the biggest point I fight therapists on at first is can you, they say, can I actually do this? And I'm like, yes. And not only can you actually do it, it can be sustainable. We don't need to sacrifice ourselves as therapists. We don't need to sacrifice ourselves to do what we love and to help the people who can really use it so that they can change their lives.
0: You know, they don't want to be bothered with the, you know, bureaucratic parts or any administrative parts, you know, it's, it's, it's too much. And we said earlier, it's like two brains, but tell me, Emery, what percentage of time devoting to being an, a therapist consequence to being this administrator guru that I <laughs> I'm silly. I'm being playful with that word, yeah. um, but it's, uh, it is funny to me that that came out. In my notes, having not talked to you about
1: (laughs) (laughs) Naropa, that's where I um, am flexible with myself over time as things shift and change. And that's how I suggest others are flexible, because I think my therapy clients probably make up about 20 percent. But that's mainly at the moment because Not only do I see clients, I'm also supporting my therapist when and however I can, making sure all the marketing and stuff is happening, which is why I have a lovely virtual assistant, Courtney, who I'm so excited I found. And I also teach some graduate level classes at Nazareth University up in Rochester. I also am a continuing education provider approved through the state of New York, but I'm licensed in New York and New Jersey and also have my national credentials, so really try to create things that count for all of those for therapists for continuing ed. And then on top of that, I'm mentoring people and running supervision groups. So there's multiple avenues. And I think what I have done in the past three years is let some of my own work with therapy clients settle into that more 20% level so I could build up the other pieces. And when I work with therapy clients, Often who I'm working with are people who are dealing with grief and loss, um, end of life issues, dementia, Alzheimer's, and it's amazing to be there with someone when they're in these sort of deep, very dark at times and also confusing spaces where they don't have that outlet and bringing art into that so that they suddenly have something they can do without having to figure out what the words are to describe things to me is just so wonderfully life-changing and to see it develop over time as they process what's been going on for them is just incredible. So I do want to let that part grow more than it has been recently. I have clients who come to me and they are like, here's where I'm experiencing anxiety in my life. And here's what I I need to shift. And we will work on it. We'll talk about, you know, where does that come from? We'll figure out some of like what's behind all of this. What are tools we can use this so you can start working with it? How are you going to come to terms with this? How are we going to change things? And people will shift and grow. And it's wonderful. But when we're dealing with grief and loss or anything like dementia, there's not, I'm not changing that person. I'm getting a chance to go into their world and meet them there. And some of the most meaningful times I've had, um, especially before really getting into private practice, were on units like that where I had time to sit there and listen to a conversation where I had no idea what the meaning was. I didn't know what we were talking about, but we were right there with each other. And I was trying my best just to keep eye contact and to talk and to answer when questions were asked. And it was great because no one else could really do that most of the time. Mm. So that sort of meaningful piece around I get to join their reality. I get to see sort of the world through their eyes and through that, hear memories that pop up and see what advice they're offering me when they're like, oh, honey, you're so young. Are you married? (laughs) And then going into their beliefs on love and relationships and just the meaningfulness when being able to give my time to just exist with them Um, really became sort of the piece that I became very passionate around, having that space.
0: Your your just overall approach, it seems like your attitude about transference and look at things on a more optimistic side
1: and then hold the space
0: did you kind of always have that? And you can save yeah. that
1: response if you want for the break. For me, I've always had pieces of that and it's just developed more and more, of course. And I think the key piece for me is being curious and open. And it's not trying to be non-judgmental. We all have judgment and I think judgment is what guides us. So I have judgments about things, but then I go, huh, why? <laughs> what, what is that? So I think curiosity is a key piece to that. And whether it's being curious about myself, my reactions, how I'm noticing something unfolding or emotions that are popping up or being curious about the person across from me or even the environment we're in. The curiosity I think is what really allows that to have things be more open and the willingness to just keep exploring. I love that. And we're going to take a quick break. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. If you are a mental health professional or creative arts therapist, Firefly and Phoenix is a wonderful resource where you can find private practice support, programs to help you realize your unique dreams and continuing education workshops with an experiential focus. For those curious about therapy, groups, or support, Water and Stone is a unique contemplative group practice that Emory has cultivated over the years. Everyone has their initial free intake with Emory. So if curious, please visit us on our website at creativelyhealing.com. We look forward to connecting with you soon. Emery, with the, with the name Artworks in Therapy, I would love to get into some little depth about what it's like to either be you or to be a client.
1: I love giving talks, but I always turn them experiential, even if I'm not supposed to, because I feel like that's how we learn. And that just brings so much more to an experience, whether it's with a client, whether it's with um, people when I'm running a workshop, whether it's um, teaching In my graduate classes, I mean, I teach an ethics and legal issues class and I love it, but we make art. And what we do is for every like topic they're exploring, they have to make two creatures, one that exemplifies the when things are going well and we're ethically upholding who we are as a therapist and the client feels great. What does that little creature look like? And then at the other end, they have to create the other creature with, what if someone violates these ethical ideas and thoughts and things that we're learning about, say, with confidentiality? How does that feel? What does that look like? So even using the art to further ideas for my students, other therapists, is so important to me. You don't have to know how to make art. I don't care if you can draw to save your life. (laughs) What I would rather you do is go, hmm, When I'm feeling this, here are the colors I'm drawn to as I look at these art materials in front of me. And this color, I just want to like dig into the paper and make lots of marks. And this color is a bit more in the background and sort of light. And just to let that be an exploration and like we're talking about that curiosity piece, to be curious about how you're feeling and what you're experiencing or what we're exploring connects to the materials that you're using, whether it's via color, how you use them, what that is. So often in order to um, really bring clients into this idea of art therapy, many are very uncertain, especially the adults. (laughs) When they first come, I often get the question, do I have to make art? And I say, well, no. I don't then add that. I almost guarantee you will be by the time we're done with our first session. (laughs) But I do ease them in and say, let me first tell you a little about the art materials that we're going to use. And I'll talk about, you know, with oil pastels, here's what you can do. Like if you press really hard, just try that. See what that feels like. And if you go lighter, what does that look like? Do you like one of those better than the other in this moment? And they might go, yeah, but I don't know why. And I'm like, that's fine. You don't need to know why. (laughs) I just want you to start to experience this so that you can see what it's like. And what that does is sort of eases any judgments they have coming in. And also it transitions them into a different mindset and into a different space of being curious and open with themselves and also starting to trust me because I also don't expect people to come to that first session and be like, okay, I trust you with my life. Here's everything you need to know. I want them to slowly build that and understand who I am, and how I work, while they also open up to themselves. So with clients, often, uh, basically every session. So with every session, I have them start with art. And I say, I give them a small piece of paper if we're together in person. Um, I've done both in person and virtual sessions with people. Or they have paper and stuff on their own. And I'll take about a quarter size piece of a normal piece of paper and either draw a circle on it or give blank, depending on the person. I usually start with the circle so that they don't have a blank page they're facing. And I say, you know, just for the next five minutes, do something on it. However you're feeling right now, whatever's coming up, just do something on it. If it's one dot, cool. If it's like covered, great. If you have an idea, go for it. But I just want you to explore. I just want you to put however you are in this moment on the paper, knowing that you'll never have to show this to another living soul but me. I mean, no one else ever has to see this, so what can you do? That both serves to bring the art in in a way that feels less threatening, (laughs) and also it gives them transition time. And I think that a lot of my practice with meditation, a lot of my comfort with grief and loss or different sort of places, silence is important. Taking time to transition is important. So I use the art supplies to help have that happen. So everybody makes art at first and that's how we start our session. And yeah, it's amazing to see how someone will come in and you can see they're ready to share all the things (laughs) like here's the whole past week of what I'm holding and the energies and the emotions and then I have them do this for five minutes and after two sessions they know that's what's going to happen so they'll come in they'll say hi and they're like okay and they jump right into the art and you see their body shift you see them ground a little bit you might see emotion come up and it's only five minutes Wow. So it just, it's a wonderful way to start a session.
0: I, I've taken a workshop from you before. I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was, but it might have been ethics-based because I always need those CEUs. But the two creatures, is so funny to think about your first inclination of what a word creature means. It's a fascinating directive. Do you have other directives that you've kind of made up or invented or you want to share now that... Or go tos, because you had mentioned the mandala. I don't know if you specifically mentioned that word. I think that sometimes can pull people into a different direction versus just saying there's a circle on the page.
1: Mm -hmm. Both with the word creatures and also the word mandala. I find like creatures I chose very specifically because I didn't want anyone to think, oh, it has to be an animal or it has to be a specific or a person. I wanted creature to leave that sort of openness (laughs) so that it was much more sort of uncertain. We create that. Who are you in this environment that you're talking about or with this emotion? And what does that emotion look like? Let's put that emotion as a character of some kind, how close do you want that creature? Where do you want it to be and how? What, what do we need to put in place between you and it to help it stay there? And sometimes it might be them creating a picture of their friends and putting that between them and this creature, be it like a creature of anxiety or fear or uncertainty, or even a creature that just feels overwhelmed. So it can be many different things. And then we'll also create good things. So sort of anthropomorphizing these emotions that are so big sometimes and then going, okay, well, let's use paper and colored pencils and create things so you have something. So that's this representation of you on this paper has something to use to deal with this. Let's them think through it in such a different way. The mandalas I'd love to use and it can feel really good for them to be like, okay, I know what a circle is. (laughs) I, I understand this.
0: It is a well-known safe space that doesn't have an edge to it that Mm -hmm. could be sharp to the eye, if you will. So, you know, listeners, I imagine, you know, circles on a page could, you know, I whenever I do it, uh, first thing I'll say is look around the room. Is there something that you can use to, to draw a circle with, to trace it with? So they, they get to explore the office in that first session. If I do that too, it's good. And I'm so glad that you, you were able to kind of articulate maybe what you don't say. Tell me a little bit about being ambiguous as an art therapist uh, in that way. Cause I find that that can be very interesting and off-putting at the same time
1: for clients. Like I've had clients ask me and go, I don't understand what we're doing. What is this? (laughs) Even with the circle, I'll be like, here's a circle. They're like, why? (laughs) Why would I do this? And I I love that because I also then know they're going to ask me questions when they need to, which is great to know. And it really engages them in the process and I'm happy to share. So I think Being ambiguous also allows me to create space for them to ask questions if they want to, or to notice if they start to struggle to say, hey, do you want to talk a little more about this? Or do you want more guidance? Like, what would help you right now? Is it understanding what we're doing? Is it me sharing how to do it? Like, what what feels good? So I think ambiguity can be a wonderful thing. And I've really grown to trust leaving space for multiple interpretations, multiple perspectives, and knowing that if I share something and then allow, whether it's a group of people in front of me or one person, to interpret it, that is already a part of the conversation that we'll then have. I'll get to see how did they take what I said. And I trust that they can go somewhere with it. I do a lot of guided imagery and other things as well on top of the art and then lead that into art with students and with clients. And a part of leading any kind of guided visualization or guided imagery is also trusting that I'm saying enough, (laughs) but I'm not being so detailed that I'm taking away the person's ability to create that picture for themselves of what we're exploring and experiencing. Ambiguity is good. It allows us to sort of figure out between me and you, what is that conversation? What is our language of going back and forth and connecting? I have people who are dealing with grief, create containers where we might, because that's the art. That's the art. And what I often will have them do is first I'll sort of say, you know, this space we're coming to be it online or in person, this is a container for you. I'm Mm going to hold this space so that you can bring whatever you need to into it Mm -hmm. within this space we're going to physically make something that you can open and close, this is the size box that feels good for me right now. And then we work on the outside of it. Like, what do you want this to look like just to the outside world, to yourself? And then what do you need on the inside? Do you need mm. to put some fabric in there? Do you want to paint it a different color? Is it like a dark color so it can be like more of a cave? Like, what do you need inside this box? And so creating that space where there's an inside and an outside then lets us really explore multiple things. And as a therapist, we know how much fun it can be to explore dualities. So like, what does the outside world see about you right now versus mm-hmm. what are you keeping inside and not sharing? Or what do you want to have on the outside to protect you while you're dealing with all of this? And what is inside that you are protecting? So you can play with those different things while also giving them control over when they access it. So having something you can open and close, especially when dealing with such big emotions that come up with grief or big anything that comes up with grief and loss, I have found so important for someone to feel like they have even the slightest bit of control. Like they can write a letter to the person who has passed. The person who died, they can write a letter saying, here are all the things I wish I could tell you right now, or I wish I could share with you, or that I think. And they might not be happy letters. They might be, here are the things I'm really angry about. Here is what I really wish I'd been able to just yell at you (laughs) before you were gone. This needs to be a safe space for that. So they might write a letter and then be like, this is a lot. And I'll suggest they put it in their box and close the top. And so they have a place to put things that literally contains what they're trying to let out so that they have control over how often it comes out, when it comes out, um, and sort of how they feel about it. They have a physical representation of being able to put it away or let it be in existence. So I started several months ago a wonderful grief group. And when we run groups, they're ongoing, so there's no end to them and people can be in them as long as they feel they need to and as long as that fits for them. And when someone leaves, a new person can come in. So it's a nice, it's a wonderful, I feel like the flow of that just feels so good. And I'm, I really have wanted to start a grief group for a while and haven't for a few years. And it's it was going wonderfully. And then I realized that I had tipped my scale a little too far in a direction and mm-hmm. some personal loss was about to happen and I knew it was about to happen. And I was like, sure. okay, yeah. I need to shift. And the wonderful thing is with, my, with Water and Stone, I have other therapists. <laughs> so I talked to one who, she was like, yeah, I'll take it over. I'd love to take it over because she also has very similar views in some ways as I do, a similar approach. And I felt like that would be a really nice transition for the participants. And she was she was thrilled to do it. So we just let them know. We both were there for a couple of weeks so she could see sort of what I was doing, understand dynamics, and then I went away. And yeah, it was totally the right call. And it allowed them to have the energy they needed and me to go, okay, <laughs> I'm good. And they still have their group. So I think that sort of ebb and flow. On that note, though, I also really try to make art. And when there's heaviness and things like this, that's important for the therapist too, to bring that creativity and art in so that I am using that to process whatever's coming up for me with the grief and loss. Um, I think one of the most powerful moments I had in grad school, I had a wonderful teacher, Sue Wallingford. Um, She has since passed, but she was incredible in terms of Supporting this part of my exploration in in um, grief and loss, because I was working on a locked dementia unit, doing art with everyone. She had us doing mandalas at the beginning of every class, which is where I got the inspiration to do that with clients. And at the end of the year, she actually printed for all of us, a picture of all our mandalas in chronological order that we had done over the year. So we could see the ebbs and flows of our up days and down days and hard weeks and good weeks. And just, it was incredible to see. And she also acknowledged that, but I had been dealing with people dying at my place, um, people sort of coming and going, losing different capabilities. And that I'd brought it to group very often in really good ways but I'd never really been able to acknowledge the people who had passed. And she said, maybe we should have a ceremony. Maybe we should do a little ceremony where you actually say their name. And I just did their first name because we still wanted to protect confidentiality, but I wanted someone to know their name. And that was very important to me. Finding those ways to mark what we're going through with art and however, whatever creative modality we use I think is also just as important.
0: Knowing yourself is the thing I wrote down just now while you were talking. It seems like it's your secret weapon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I think knowing myself has been a very top priority for the past years. My therapist, I've had this one for, she's awesome, for over 10 years. And we don't see each other all the time, but we'll do like a year on and then I'll take a break and not need anything for a little while. But when something comes up or I'm starting to feel that sort of, whoo, I'm burning out or I'm overwhelmed... I'll get back in touch and we'll start therapy again. So just even knowing someone is there to support me helps me rebalance. Mm -hmm. And then on top of all this diversity of things that I do, being able to turn to my own art materials and I journal some, I try to make art regularly and also knowing that like I do weightlifting. So the physical piece is important too, but I know that that balances and opens up possibilities for everything else.
0: Specializing, which... Mm -hmm. For you, it looks like you have a specialization or a niche in many, many areas. What would you say to those therapists in that regard? Is it important or do you, again, just have to kind of know yourself?
1: Over time, you will know yourself. Like that's going to happen as long as you're continuing to be curious and open and all of that, you will learn, you'll know yourself and you'll get to know yourself better and better. You don't necessarily need like one thing you do, but you do need to be able to focus in on one or two things. So If that is like ADHD, like you love working with people who have maybe just gotten this diagnosis and they're trying to find tools and understand it, and you know that that is your passion, great. So when you're thinking about marketing and other things, focus in on that client. It's not going to pigeonhole you. And I think that's a worry a lot of people have is that that will then be how they're known and that's it there are going to be people that find you that have nothing to do with ADHD. It's just what happens in this world. And think of how many people there are who need support. So they'll find you. It's not that you need to have just one thing, but you should know what like your top one or two things are and use whatever you're most excited about. I have found both my specialties and how I like to diversify what I do, but it's taken years (laughs) and it's been very trial and error. Very interesting. I tell people about when i First our Water and Stone, I had an office and I'd literally sit in it with my plants talking to them because it was just me. <laughs> I've come a lot further since then, yeah. but it's an evolution because even in the weirdest, worst, most bizarre environment situations that some of us have worked in, we can learn a lot. And we can also, even if it's just practicing how day to day do I go through this, do what I can do in the moments I can do it and make it through the rest. Um, That builds a lot of resilience. It's not always fun or easy and it's not always wonderful, but we can really get a lot out of that knowing 10 years from now, we're going to look back and go, thank goodness I did that job and also finished that job and have moved on to other things. Yeah, and I often suggest people do mind mapping for things like this. So if you don't know what a mind map is, it's a great sort of way to visualize all these different pieces of your life or a specific issue, challenge, whatever it is. It's a wonderful way to explore that. And I have people make lists. I have people make art and we explore what is this and what parts do I really not like and how do I feel about it?
0: To know what you don't want is just yes. highly effective right? Um, Yes.
1: When I tell the personal stories of when I failed, they're like, thank God. Thank you for sharing that you failed. It just makes it feel so much more doable because they see all the success all the time. So when I'm like, when I started, I charged $40 a group and I lost money every single time I ran a group, you know, that's where I started. So even imparting the stories of the times when I did it totally wrong or the trial and error that went horrendously crazily in the direction I never anticipated. I also find for me, I love sharing that because it does make me a human (laughs) and it lets people see that this isn't just all woohoo. It worked. It's actually a lot of different pieces coming together and learning from them.
0: Well, Emery, Michael, I want to thank you for being here on the show and I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have too. And all of your insight and your transparency.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, John. I really loved it. And it's so great you're doing this.
0: All right. Well, thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Thank you.